Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number one of our discussion of Alice's adventures. We're going to be talking about Alice in Wonderland first, and then Alice Through the Looking Glass, the two classic stories by Lewis Carroll. Uh, really excited uh, to dig into the uh, <clears throat> these stories. Um, these stories are, are just iconic stories. Um, and clearly not only are they still you know remain fascinating and brilliant stories but they were clearly enormously formative stories uh for people of a certain generation and i i here refer particularly uh to lewis and tolkien's generation um lewis and tolkien refer to alice uh, and Alice's adventures, especially through the Looking Glass, more through the Looking Glass than than Alice in Wonderland, uh, by a fair bit. Um, they refer to them a lot. Both of them refer to them refer to those to the to these books a lot. Um, and uh, some of you may know, some of you may not, that one of the poems uh, in Through the Looking Glass, um, Tolkien translated into Quenya as an exercise. When he was like, you know, in part of his exercise of working on Quenya, uh, he decided it's the walrus and the carpenter. A long poem he translated into Quenya. Um, anyway, so it's um, uh, it's it's you know these 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 works uh, and the poems in particular really kind of lived in their imaginations and helped to form their imaginations. I think The Hobbit in particular, uh, and Narnia both, but The Hobbit especially, I think, really owes a lot uh, to Alice's adventures. Anyway, I'm not only going to be looking at Alice's adventures in relationship to Lewis and Tolkien, but I would mention it because it's it's the main reason I was really excited about this. When I taught my, um, uh, my Hobbit course uh, at Signum way back when, uh, what was it, fall of... Uh, 2012, I think I taught it. Um, when I taught my Hobbit class in fall of 2012, I um, I included through the Looking Glass in one of uh, you know we read a bunch of kind of uh, sources and analogs at the beginning. We read Winnie the Pooh, we read uh, uh, through the Looking Glass, uh, and and some others, the marvelous Land of Snurgs. And um, anyway, I've not really gotten to dig in and spend time with these books since then. I mean, it's been 10 years for me uh, since I've really said, so I'm just delighted. And I've never done what we're doing here. I've never just gone through the uh, the two books together, sort of back to back. Um, I have to admit that like Lewis and Tolkien, I've always preferred Through the Looking Glass pretty heavily. I love Through the Looking Glass. It's one of my favorites. Uh, but um, I've never liked Alice in Wonderland quite as much. Uh, it's not that I dislike it. I just don't love it as much as I love Through the Looking Glass. Um, so I've been guilty of neglecting it, uh, I will confess, before we begin. Um, and I am um, really interested to see what emerges when we get a chance to sit down regularly and um, I kind of go through uh, go through this whole thing. Yeah, I realized as I was starting up, David, that uh, I still have my uh, titles from the afternoon. It's a Wednesday night risk. Uh, my Wednesdays are kind of crazy. I do other minds and hands at four, um, and I have no. Usually, the moment I'm sitting down to start class here is the first moment I'm back at home and in front of my computer since I sign off from other minds and hands. So, it's always a um, bit up in the air as to whether or not I will remember uh, to uh, to to change that or not, but. 
Anyway, we'll figure it out. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let us... Well, but before we dig into the text, um, I wanted to just uh, talk about the upcoming events, the moots that we have coming up. I talked about this last night, but it's worth talking about again. Um because our event calendar is really starting to fill up and it's getting pretty exciting. So if we look at our upcoming moots, first, of course, we have Myth Moot. Myth Moot is Signum's big event of the year, um, our three, three to four day conference. Um, and uh, from June 23rd to 26th, we're going to be uh, having it at the Dulles Airport Marriott uh, near Dulles Airport in Virginia. Um, and uh, so it'll be even easier to get to than in previous years. This is our official uh, relocated venue. We gave up our normal venue uh, uh, because uh, there are a whole bunch of uh, refugee children staying there, which is uh, an awesome thing for the venue to be doing. So uh, we're happy to support them in that. And um, uh, and anyway, we're going to be at the Dulles Airport Marriott. Um, and I'll give the same warning that I gave last night, which is that we're going to have to close the physical participation registration earlier than we usually do. So if you're thinking about joining us, about, about actually coming to Virginia to join us for MythMoot, which I hope you'll consider, um, I would definitely encourage you to get your tickets sooner rather than later because we are going to have to close registration a little bit sooner. Um, and um, yeah, it is on airport grounds. It's, it's right there, uh, Arthur. So it means anybody flying in Nothing could be more convenient than our new location, so uh, that should be uh, that should be pretty easy. Um, and uh, uh, the the uh, room registration link is, I am told, going to be available. Any we're just waiting for them to send it to us. So uh, and almost any time we will have that, uh, and we'll have that all ready for folks. Um, the um, uh, but we also have our regional moot calendar for next year beginning to fill up already. So we have three moots which are confirmed and registration is open. Now you can go to our event page and you can register uh, for any of these three, any or all of these three moots uh, coming up. We have Buckeye Moot in Cincinnati, Ohio on July 30th. We have SoCal Moot in Carlsbad, California, just north of San Diego on November 5th. And we have Oz Moot in Brisbane, Australia uh, from January 27th to 29th. Big, big festival we're doing down in Australia. Our first ever visit to Australia. Um, this is... Uh, uh, the 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 by far the longest I, far the furthest I will ever have traveled for uh, for a regional moot, uh, and I am so excited uh, to get down to Australia and to connect with folks there. Um, so those three are going to be um, um, really um, uh, really awesome events. Uh, I wanted to. Um, two of them are brand new. We've never been to Australia before. We've never done a moot in Ohio before. So uh, those are both brand new. Uh, SoCal moot, this will be our third SoCal moot. Um, we haven't had one in a couple years, though, so uh, that will be fun to get back. SoCal moot was the very last moot before, like, as the pandemic was hitting, basically. Uh, it was the very last moot we had before the pandemic shut down moots. Uh, so uh, really fun to get back to... Um, um, uh, to uh, SoCal Moot again. Now, we also have more Moots, but that's just the beginning. 
Um, those are only the ones that are open for registration already. We have three more, which are probable, not yet wholly confirmed, but just wanted to let you know what we're thinking about. Uh, we're looking at Mountain Moot in Denver, Colorado, uh, possibly on September 24th. Um, we're looking at Middle Moot, October 8th. That date is firm. October 8th, Middle Moot in Kansas City, Missouri is definitely going to happen. We only need uh, just a few more details and we'll open registration on that one. And New England Moot um, on October 22nd in Durham, New Hampshire, up here near me. Um, so those are um, uh, those are the, the others that we are we're finalizing, and you know I'll let you know when those are uh, when those are completely done. Um, but uh, all of these happening here, you know, within the next uh, within the next six to eight months. This is our this is our how the fall schedule is kind of shaping up. And if you want to stay in touch with the events that are coming up and see when the next regional moot might be happening near you, um, you can go to our events page. This is signumuniversity.org. Go to events and you can see all of our upcoming events. Here's the link to the myth moot page. Here's Buckeye moot. A save the date page for middle moot because I say we're confident with the date there. Or, you know, you can go here's SoCal moot and you can um, read all about uh, the theme of the moot, and then submit. Uh, you can register. You can submit uh, a proposal for a presentation um, uh, at the moot. Uh, lots of fun opportunities there. So all of these things are here available um, uh, on our webpage. So that's those are the upcoming events. People are always asking me about regional moots that are coming up. You know, when's this going to happen? When's that one going to happen? So I just wanted to give folks an update uh, about what we're um, uh, about what we're we're planning. Um, so um, yeah, hey, uh, hey David, if you have any ideas about that, you know you were in Denver. Um, uh, David, if if uh, you have any suggestions, um, want to send in an email. Uh, send an email to info at signumu.org, and we can kind of connect you with, you know, kind of brief you on what we're planning there, and see if maybe you have any suggestions. It'd be really be really handy. Always always nice to have more kind of people on the ground uh, to uh, let us figure stuff out. So, um, all right, cool. Um, let's um, let's get into the text, especially since we start with a poem. So uh, the book begins, Alice in Wonderland, begins with this poem which offers sort of the origin story of the book, right? All in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide, for both our oars with little skill by little arms are plied, while little hands make vain pretense our wanderings to guide. Now, let's stop for a second. So... What do we do? Where do we start? <laughs> it's it's a poem. We are confronted with a poem, right? Um, so uh, so 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 what do we do? We um, uh, we should look at the sound, right? Look at the patterns. What exactly is going on here? Um, so what is the sound shape of this poem? Um, glancing ahead, we can see that. The, this stanza structure um, and these line structures are look to be consistent. And again, glancing up ahead, I think I see that the rhyme scheme is going to remain consistent as well. Um, okay. All in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide. All in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide. What's the, what's the sound pattern? What's the meter 
of this poem. Ha ha, Genartana says we're confronted with the poem. What do we do? We skip it. Yeah, very funny, Genartanis. Very funny. Anyway, what's the pattern? C can you hear the meter? It's a very regular meter, right? Yes, David, these are these are IMs, right? Um I the iambic meter is unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed. Bum 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 bum. All in the golden afternoon for leisurely we glide almost perfectly regular. For both our oars with little skill by little arms are plied, while little hands make vain pretense our wanderings to guide. There we go. Um, so the, now the next thing is to count the number of feet. How many stressed syllables do we get? All in the golden afternoon. Bum 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 bum. All in the golden afternoon full leisurely we glide. For both our oars with little skill by little arms are plied, while little hands make vain pretense our wanderings to guide. There we go. It's alternating between four beats a line and three beats a line, which should sound familiar to Tolkien fans out there, right? This is one of Tolkien's favorite meters as well, um, an iambic meter, a very regular iambic meter. Um, if um, it should, it should sound like, um, um, you know, and cursed the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimradel, right? That's uh, exactly the same meter as this, right? Okay. Um, so we have iambic tetrameter alternating with a three-beat iambic trimeter line. Um, what's the, uh, what's the, the, yeah, so David, this is always an interesting question. Um, is it like really heptameter, like a seven foot line? Um, so like basically what are we getting here? Are we getting, are we getting a six line stanza, right? Alternating, or are we really getting a three line stanza with the, you know, the lines kind of semi split in half, right? And for that, um, I would say, uh, David Michael, that, um, the to me the difference lies in the sound of the lines you just kind of let the lines guide you right um do the lines insist on a break you know you might sometimes have some enjambment right when the line rolls over into the next line without a break um does that is that happening dependably or is that just kind of sometimes happening right i get like the Nimradel line I just quoted, right? And cursed the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimradel. Um, most of that poem, like if you hear it aloud, you would never know it was written like this. You'd think it was written out in seven foot lines, right? Um, but uh, because that you can't hear a break at all in that line. Um, here, all in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide. For both our oars, with little skill, by little arms are plied, while little hands make vain pretense our wanderings to guide. Ah, cruel three, in such an hour, beneath such dreamy weather, to beg a tale of breath too weak to stir the tiniest feather. And yet what can one poor voice, what, and yet, sorry, yet what can one poor voice avail against three tongues together? Okay, um, there is some enjambment. I mean, one of the things that you find, and it's very common in this meter, right, is that usually it might not be totally enjambed, like one continuous thought, one continuous breath, right? Um, but usually 
the pairs of lines, right, the fours and threes, the paired fours and threes, are tied together a little bit more closely than the others. And that's emphasized by the, uh, by the rhyme, right? We get no rhyme on lines one, three, and five of this stanza, right? Uh, what sounds like it might be the half line, right? The end of the, the, the tetrameter line. Um, there is no hint or indication of any rhyming or doing anything, right? Uh, with that as an end, as, a, as, a, as an end line phenomenon. Whereas we get three um, monosyllabic but very tight rhymes um, at the end of two, four, and six, right? So again, it does end up sounding again if you just heard it if you weren't looking at it on the page and you were just listening to it you might hear three long lines all rhyming with each other right um so this kind of meter definitely does have that effect it's one of the things that i think is really fun about this meter is that it enables you to play it enables a poet to play with um longer phrases um you know longer phrases and sentences um instead of just hitting on, you know, like tetrameter, we just, when every line is four beats, right? On the one hand, it might seem like you can say more because there's, look, there's like two extra syllables, you know, every other line, right? So this, this stanza would have, uh, would have six more syllables than it would if, uh, if it, you know, as it does in this meter. Um, so like, surely you could say more. And yet um, it tends to be more uh, broken, Right. In the sense that, again, it's the, the general pressure is for each line to be independent. And so you end up having these short phrases, which sometimes the, the kind of um, vice of iambic tetrameter, sometimes when you read a long poem in iambic tetrameter, it can start sounding really sing-songy because you're just like those four beat lines um, just start to kind of jangle after a while. Um, this allows for a little bit more fluidity and flourish, right? All in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide, for both our oars with little skill by little arms are plied, while little hands make vain pretense our wanderings to guide. Um, now, what, uh, what else do we see? What else do we see as far, before we get to the subject matter to the plot of this poem. What else do we see in how word usage, a sort of shapes of word usage uh, or uh, sounds of words? Anything else that you notice about this? Um, yeah, David, it is so regular. This ends up very bouncy. And I, I think it's very much meant to be this poem, right? Um, it is, um, in fact, I think there are a bunch of places where Lewis Carroll wrote some of the best comical poetry of the last 200 years. I mean, uh, he is really good at funny poems. And it's one, like when um, poems which are attempting to be serious or even grand or even epic um, get sing-songy, it's like a disaster, usually, often. Right. Uh, because that is just striking against the effect that they're going for. 
With Lewis Carroll, no, not so much, right? This is supposed to be funny. Um, and so there's, uh, and that I think you can see um, fairly, um, fairly quickly uh, as, we, as we get into it. Um, good, so more, more, more patterns that you, that you notice. Um, uh, interesting, most of the main lines start with dependent clauses or prepositional phrases, uh, says David Attlee. Yeah, um, uh, yes, all in the golden, for both our oars, while little hands. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, one of the things that I would, the, I guess, conclusion, David, that I would draw from that, there is, um, there is a playful indirection about this first stanza, right? Which I think kind of tips us off to the fact there's a, um, there's a kind of elusiveness. There's a, a setup and then a comic disappointment of expectation, right? Look at the, just the first line. All in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide. Stop. What's this poem about? What do you expect? After that line, what do you expect? Just, just, just that line, right? All in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide. What's it about? What does it sound like it's going to be about? And this is a, sometimes a hard game to play because somebody writing a poem like this is going to be picking up on poetic traditions from before, right? And if you're not familiar with those poetic traditions from before, you're not going to hear the setup, right? The thing that's kind of expected. Um, uh, we've got a, a pastoral reflection, uh, Jocelyn, something like that. Yeah, I think. Um, it it might likely be a kind of sort of pastoral-esque love poem, maybe. There's, there's a we. There's an ambiguous we in that second line, which is a little bit... Um, and the the, the combination of the unknown we, which is often like a little um, love poem signal, right? Somebody who is uh, a speaker, the speaker of the poem, um, who is not the same as the author of the poem, necessarily, of course, right? You've got the, the sort of the performative speaker, often a first-person speaker of the poem, um, who is a, a sort of a character put up by the author, right? Um, so anyway, so the speaker of the poem um, is off when you start with a we like that, is often addressing uh, the beloved, right? And reflecting on their time together, right? So, um, and the setting, the golden afternoon, ah, we've got tranquility and lassitude, um, leisure, right? Explicitly alluded to there in the second line. Um, sounds like it could be uh, romance, contentment, possibly even some kind of, uh, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily, when I say love poem, it doesn't have to be like a, a passionate poem necessarily, right? But uh, a, a poem of peaceful love or something like that in a boat, right? Um, and that, But then, for both our oars, with little skill, by little arms are plied. Oh, wait, the we, the we is not, you know, two lovers after all. There are children involved here, right? While little hands make vain pretense our wanderings to guide. Okay, so there, we've got somebody who is out on a boat with children who are in charge of the boat, right? The children are rowing, the children are steering, right? Um, this is 
uh, full leisurely, yes. But notice how that word now has a totally different <laughs> sense, right? Uh, at first, it might have conjured this idea of this, like, you know, blissful coasting down the river, right? Again, perhaps a loving couple lounging in the boat, right, with not a care in the world. Um, uh, they might be gliding leisurely, but I doubt they're gliding straight, <laughs> right? Um, uh, they might be making their leisurely way uh, uh, wherever they, wherever it is that they're rowing. They might be making their leisurely way in the sense of going a very indirect course to getting to where they're going, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly, as David says, if you know anything about boats or children, uh, they're going in circles. They're going in frustrated circles. Very likely. Very likely. Um, and yes, the... Um, um, he sets it up with, for both our oars, with little skill. So we start with a little skill, right? Um, and it's like, again, we've got the, the hour, our oars. So what, they're each rowing an oar? Okay. The, the, the we, which again, it's, I, I, I think that, you know, the, the love poetry tradition is strong enough that I, I still think that's probably the default assumption when you start with the with the unknown we in this kind of a poem. Um, uh, and then so the little skill is kind of that's the transition, right? It's the first invitation to us to laugh at the speaker, right? Um, but it's a gentle one, right? Like the, it, it may be like, oh, like this is going to be he's going to be telling the story of like the time they got lost in the boat, or maybe they got upset in the boat or something, you know, who knows. Um, but then we move from little skill to little arms, right? Okay, so now the oars are plied by little arms, right? Um, and then we get the little hands, right? So we get little skill, little arms, and then little hands. Little hands make vain pretense our wanderings to guide. I love that line. Well, little hands make vain pretense our wanderings to guide. Uh, the little hands are um, telling you, right, that they're in charge, right? That they are guiding our wanderings, but the pretense is vain. The pretense of guidance is vain, right? Uh, it is It is just not happening. Um, Look at the rhymes, right? We start with glide, very placid. Plied about the oars, right? Which is interesting because, hang on a second. Um, if you're rowing, I mean, I guess you could be rowing and gliding at the same time. I mean, you do kind of glide across the water when you're rowing. But um, uh, but it, again, it's it seems a little bit contrary to the image of the gliding leisurely, like, again, just lounging in a boat that's that's sliding along the water, right? Um, and now we have arms plying the oars. Um, and yet, it sounds like still not actually getting anywhere, right? Because they're being plied with so little skill. Um, and by the way, it makes the full leisurely we, gr we glide sound even more ironic now, doesn't it? Right? Um, again, I can't imagine... Um, with little arms plying both the oars with little skill, 
Um, I can't imagine there's much leisurely gliding going on at all. I would think I would think it's pretty rocky in that boat. Uh, and they're probably, you know, maybe not only, uh, you know, going around like going around in circles, but like rotating. Right. And there's probably a good deal of splashing going on. Um, I, I, I begin to strongly doubt the, the leisureliness of the glide both the leisureliness and the glide, right? And then the vain pretense are wanderings to guide. So ending with guide, right? Which is clearly ironic, right? Um, there's there's precious little guidance uh, that is uh, that is going on here at all. So notice how, so you can see how he has very gently set us, and this is, this is, you know, Carol's comical style. And it's really, it's really, uh, it's really funny, right? Um, this kind of, the gentle setup, right? And then things get kind of more and more, uh, more and more strange. Things go more and more awry as we move in, right? So then we go. Ah, cruel three, in such an hour beneath such dreamy weather, to beg a tale of breath too weak to stir the tiniest feather. Yet what can one poor voice avail against three tongues together? Ah, cruel three. Okay, so... Uh, you guys know your classics? Lewis Carroll did, right? Uh, as did most educated people of the 19th century. So, who are the cruel three? You hear cruel three. What, who, whom should you be thinking of? Your good Latin students. You've read your Virgil. Yeah, the fates, possibly even the furies, Right? Macbeth's witches are conceivable, but I think probably, uh, probably either the fates or the furies uh, are what we're thinking of here, right? Um, especially the way um, the juxtaposition of all cruel three, uh, which is, again, that's a very, um, a very Latinate invocation, right? Ah, cruel three. Um, we're using we're using we're using the locative case right here uh, addressing uh, the cruel three. By the way, there will be another locative case joke <laughs> right in chapter two. Um, anyway, so you know here he is, you know, with this uh, this 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 poetic apostrophe, sounding like he's appealing to the, and then in such an hour, right? The juxtaposition of ah cruel three with in such an hour. Um, oh man, it's awesome uh, beneath such dreamy weather. Um, so we've got the contrast of the cruel three and the dreamy weather. Um, but what are the cruel three doing? Again, after the setup uh, and the conclusion of stanza one, I thought the cruel three uh, were you know, going to be like wrecking them on the rocks or they were going to be um, uh, or they were going to be. Um, Oh, so I'm sorry. Yeah, not the locative. I mean the vocative. Locative is different. Uh, the vocative case is exact. Is just what I meant. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Bjorn Sonner. Um, anyway, um, it sounds like he's. I, I was ready for him to be lamenting them oversetting the boat, or, or, or you know, you know, running into something, or uh, uh, sinking another boat, or, or whatever. Right. Um, but once again, once again, he. Um, uh, disappoints our expectations. Having built up the expectation by the end of the first stanza of probable nautical disaster, right? And then starting with an even more exaggerated beginning of stanza two, he then t turns it again, right? 
Um, no, the cruelty is involved in begging a tale of breath too weak to stir the tiniest feather that in the midst of all this, they're asking for a story. So the speaker is being asked for a story by the, now we are uh, presumably led to understand three children, um, which makes sense, right? One for each oar and one uh, steering, <laughs> right? Making vain pretense to guide their wanderings. Uh, so, okay. So there are in fact three children involved. Um, uh, and of course you see the joke in To Beg a Tale of Breath to Why is his breath too weak to stir the tiniest feather? presumably because he's scared for his life, right? Or not like for his life, but I mean, uh, we seem to have one adult out boating with three children, right? Um, and he's he's responsible for this crew, right? I mean, what's he going to do if they sink the boat or they overset the boat and he's got to save the three of them from drowning, right? I mean, this is... Uh, uh, and one could understand why he is perhaps a little short of breath under these circumstances. Um, yet, what can one poor voice avail against three tongues together? Um, so he is, uh, he is helpless to resist the three joined together. Imperious Prima flashes forth her edict to begin it. In gentler tones, Secunda hopes there will be nonsense in it, while Tertia interrupts the tale not more than once a minute. Um... That last line is so perfect. That's such a perfect Lewis Carroll line. Um, I think of all of the uh, of this entire poem, the last two lines of that third stanza are like just quintessentially the spirit of Lewis Carroll poetry. Um, the comical, um, the comical pacing, right? Um, notice, by the way, how he's shifted in this stanza. Uh, to a two-syllable rhyme. We've been building up to this, right? We had a one-syllable rhyme in the first stanza. Glide, plied, guide. In the second stanza, we had a two-syllable rhyme, but in one word. Weather, feather, together, right? In the third stanza, we get a two-syllable line, uh, two-syllable rhyme again, but this time combining two words in three different combinations, right? Begin it. In it. And then minute, right? So the second half of one word and a one-syllable word, two one-syllable words, and then one two-syllable word. So we get three different combinations of this. And the more he starts kind of reaching in, the, in those way for the rhymes, the funnier it sounds, right? Um, uh, notice again the contrast also, like part of the comedy also comes from the... Um, the contrast between the tone and style of the poem and the subject matter of the poem, right? Imperious Prima flashes forth her edict, right? Again, very, this sounds like it could be, um, uh, sounds like it could be a, a translation of a line of Virgil, right? Um, especially with Prima, the Latin word in there, right? Um, for the eldest born. Um, and, uh, and then the contrast with, with the, the quotations from the first two girls, right, form the contrast. Um, her edict to begin it, right? In gentler tones, Secunda hopes there will be nonsense in it. 
while Tertia interrupts the tale not more than once a minute. Um, the wry uh, uh, observation about Tertia, um, but I uh, just like again everything about the the way that the 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 minute, the two syllable one word two syllable rhyme, uh, uh, kind of culminates the comical rhyme of that stanza, the pacing of the line, the way that he sh he's led us to expect a third quotation, right? Prima says one thing, Secunda says a third thing, and Tertia's going to say something else, right? Except the joke is that Tertia says so much that he can't even, he can't even quote her, right? Um, well, Tertia interrupts the tale not more than once a minute. Uh, just, just a perfect, perfect Lewis Carroll line. Anon to sudden silence one in fancy they pursue, the dream child moving through a land of wonders wild and new, in friendly chat with bird or beast, and half believe it true. Okay, so now we get into narrative, the narrative about the narrative, right? We get so the good we have this we have this meta-narrative moment, right? This is the story of the story. And so he gives a kind of summary of the story that's going to come. He's telling the story of the first audience receiving the story, right? Um, and he describes the effect of the story. They are won to sudden silence by the story, right? So, um, which is, uh, sounds like quite a feat under the circumstances, right? Um, and, uh, um, they pursue in fancy. Uh, fancy, of course, means fantasy, like in their imagination, right? Um, in fancy, in, in their imagination, they pursue the dream child, moving through a land of wonders wild and new, in friendly chat with bird or beast, and half believe it true. Um, so they are half believing uh, the story. This imaginative investment that he is describing in the story of the dream child as the dream child moves through the land of wonders wild and new and ever as the story drained the wells of fancy dry and faintly strove that weary one to put the subject by the rest next time it is next time the happy voices cry once again the speaker now in interjects himself, brings the attention back to himself and his own role in this story, right? His first role in the story was nervously clinging to the boat, right? Uh, his second was trying to figure out how to tell a story in the middle of this chaos. Um, and the third was now he's, he's telling the story, right? But now we come back to his perspective. And ever as the story drained the wells of fancy dry, we return to the word fancy, right? Fantasy. But now it is you notice that the first time it was their fancy, right? Um, the fancy of the, the, the audience, the girls, um, and they were pursuing the dream child in their fancy. And their fancy is quite robust. They have to believe it true, right? Um, robust and apparently inexhausted, unexhausted. Is there an adjective for that? Anyway, whatever. Um, and ever as the story drained the wells of fancy dry, his wells of fancy. It comes out of his fancy, right? His fancy is the one that's at work making up the story, right? Uh, making up all the things, all the wonders, right? Uh, to For them to marvel at, his listeners to marvel at. And he depicts his own wells of fancy running dry, right? And the story just draining the fancy out of him. 
and faintly strove that weary one to put the subject by. Right? He tries to pass it off. The rest next time. Right? Notice, by the way, he's not used the first person singular in that entire stanza. Right? He's very indirect about it. And ever as the story drained the wells of fancy dry, he doesn't insert himself grammatically into the first part of that sentence. Right? He refers to himself indirectly as that weary one. Right? In line three. Um, but uh, the happy voices are relentless. The rest next time. It is next time, the happy voices cry. Um, notice the effect of that line. The rest next time. It is next time. Uh, the way that that sentence is divided in half and repeats itself, right? Almost exactly. Um, of course, this is a very, uh, again, Anyone who has spent any time with children can easily picture this. This seems a very faithful uh, portrait. Um, and yet also, that's the most jarring line in the poem, to some extent, right? We haven't gotten that kind of a pattern of repetition or internal rhyme, right? But and this is not just internal rhyme. It's straight-up repetition of the phrase next time, right? Um, as he's trying to push it back to next time, and yet next time he is told, is here already, right? Uh, next time and this time uh, and turn out to be identical, and so we repeat it in the same line, right? I, I love the effect of that. The happy voices cry. Um, uh, and the, we get the contrast between the happy voices and the weary one faintly striving to put the subject by, right? Um, you know, his, uh, his, his weariness and their, uh, their undrained energy, right? Um, Thus grew the tale of Wonderland, thus slowly, one by one, its quaint events were hammered out, and now the tale is done, and home we steer, a merry crew, beneath the setting sun. Okay, thus grew the tale of Wonderland, thus slowly, one by one, its quaint events were hammered out, and now the tale is done. Notice again the agency of this, um, the agency of, of the syntax here. Again, no I in there, right? The tale of Wonderland is growing, right? It's just, it's just happening, right? The tale of Wonderland is growing. Um, thus, thus grew it. Thus slowly, one by one, its quaint events were hammered out. Right there, he actively, he, I was going to say actively uses the passive voice, which is a strange way to say it. Um, uh, he, he, he moves into the passive voice there. Its quaint events were hammered out. Who is doing the hammering here? Right? On the one hand, it was these things were coming from his well of fancy, right? Um, and yet, if there was any hammering going on here, uh, it is clearly hammering being done by the, uh, the what were they called? The Cruel Three, right? Uh, the Cruel Three, the Happy Voices. Um, uh, and I think that this is, yeah, the kids' questions are doing the hammering, Sarah, I think is exactly what we're supposed to be hearing here. Um, exactly right. Um, it's quaint events were hammered out, and now the tale is done. And home we steer. Now he goes to the first person again, right? Um, we are steering. You get the sense that he's now assisting with the steering, right? Um, uh, in order to get home, 
before it's full dark, <laughs> right? And home we steer, a merry crew, beneath the setting sun. Uh, Alice, a childlike story take, and with a gentle hand, lay it where childhood's dreams are twined in memory's mystic band, like pilgrim's withered wreath of flowers plucked in a far-off land. Ooh, do you hear that? Let me read the last three stanzas again and tell me what you hear in that last stanza. And ever as the story drained the wells of fancy dry, and faintly strove that weary one to put the subject by, the rest next time, it is next time, the happy voices cry. Thus grew the tale of Wonderland, thus slowly, one by one, its quaint events were hammered out, and now the tale is done, and home we steer, a merry crew, beneath the setting sun. Alice, a childish story take, and with a gentle hand, lay it where childhood's dreams are twined in memory's mystic band, like pilgrim's withered wreath of flowers plucked in a far-off land. Whoa. Hear that? Feel it? It's like, um, feel how thick that last stanza is compared to the others? Um, much less regular. The meter is much less, re less regular. Um, how does that happen? What's going on here? Um, well, it starts with a reversal. Yes, Sarah says, where'd the IMs go? Exactly. Alice, it begins. Alice is not an IM. That's a trochee, right? It's, it's reversed. Um, you can't say the name Alice in iambic. I mean, unless you have a, an unstressed syllable in front of it. Right? You can't start the line with Alice. As soon as he does, the whole rhythm gets thrown off. Right, And home we steer a merry crew beneath the setting sun. Alice. Whoa. Right? Hear it? Um, Alice, we try to recover. A childish story take and with a gentle hand. Lay it where childhood's dreams are twined in memory's mystic band. Like pilgrim's withered wreath of flowers plucked in a far-off land. Um, you can do it. It's not, it doesn't vacate the rhythm, right? It's still basically the same meter, but, um, but it feels like, you know, chewing toffee to get the syllables all out, right? Um, um, right. Mad violinist, it's true. If you were French, Alice works fine. Right, Alice, right? Uh, but that is not, uh, I think, what is going on here. Um, when you look at it carefully, apart from Alice, he doesn't significantly break the meter, right? When you kind of map it out and look at it, right? And with a gentle hand, lay it, okay, well, that's, you can't do, lay it, right? You're not going to, that's not iambic again. Right? So we start with a trochaic foot again. Lay it. Where childhood's dreams are twined. Okay, so the rest of it, like the first like the first line, we start with a non-iambic foot, right? A, a, a deviation from the iams in the first foot. And then we resume the iams. Yes, we resume the iams, right? But where childhood's dreams are twined, right? Um... He's sque He's cheating. He's sque the apostrophe s. That's che that's cheating, right? Technically, childhoods is two syllables, right? But the apostrophe s really stretches it. It's still technically two syllables, 
Um, but especially to then go to dreams, right? Where you start and end. That, it's a one-syllable word. Dreams is a one-syllable word, right? But it starts and ends with a compound, with like a, a, a multi-consonantal sound, right? D-R and then M-S. So you've got one syllable, five sounds, five distinct sounds being made in that one syllable. Dreams. Which is, you can do in one syllable, but it's a lot to do in one syllable. And then when you, when you go straight to that from childhoods, with the apostrophe S, right? Childhoods dreams. Yes, it perfectly fits the meter, right? But boy, is it hard to say in the meter, right? Lay it where childhood's dreams are twined in memory's mystic band. We get the same thing with the apostrophe S again, right? In memory's mystic band. Um, like pilgrim's withered wreath of flowers. We're double cheating now, right? Um, in the sense that we're now we get the apostrophe S and then we got the apostrophe D, right? To make sure, now that's just a, a signal to make sure sometimes you would pronounce the ED at the end. Um, especially the further back you go in English pronunciation, the more common it is to pronounce the ed, withered. Um, you wouldn't say that all the time, but you might say it sometimes. And so a poet uh, will often use the r apostrophe d like that in order to ensure you don't pronounce it. Whereas similarly, if they want to make sure you do pronounce the ed, they'll put an accent over the e, right? Those are two conventions, two poetic conventions used in order to guide the pronunciation of the reader, right? Um, uh, like pilgrim's withered wreath of flowers plucked in a far-off land. Um, now this one, unlike line one and line three, it does not start the meter works like pilgrims. We, we, we have an, an I am there. Like pilgrims with their wreath of flowers. Flowers. Again, one syllable, right? Like dreams, right? Flowers. Flowers is kind of one syllable if you cheat, right? But you have to cheat a little bit. Um, flowers plucked. The transition from the RS to the PL right? Again, all of these compound sounds. Oh my goodness. Um, flowers can be two syllables, but I don't think it is in this case. Um, you can also pronounce flowers one as one syllable. Um, and I, I think this is a one syllable version. He didn't do the apostrophe R thing here, though sometimes they do that. Um, but um, but I think it's, I think that flowers is supposed to be one syllable, but again, it's a Another one of those meaty one syllables, like dreams, um, and plucked. Again, same thing, right? Um, uh, plucked in a far off land, like pilgrims' withered wreath of flowers plucked in far off land. Okay, so what's the effect of all this? This um, same meter doesn't change the meter, but he interrupts it twice, and the whole rest of it feels like you're walking through mud. Right, it feels like you're you're um, feels like you're running down the beach, right? And now you've gotten to the water, and now you're slowed down. You can still maybe run in the same at the in the same rhythm, right? But you're not going as fast, right? Um, uh, that's to me kind of the effect of that last stanza, right? It doesn't just it doesn't ditch the meter. 
but he makes a significant change. Now, why? What's the effect of this, right? What, what, what happens to us as listeners as a result of that uh, shift in the last stanza? And my answer is, it slows us down. We have to slow down. We have to think about it, right? Um, he's shifting tone here. He's no longer talking about the story, right? Presumably they got home beneath the setting sun, um, undunked and undrowned and uh, happily having listened to a story, right? Um, so that tale ended happily. And now, what's he do? He addresses Alice. Alice, a childish story take. So Alice is supposed to take the story and with a gentle hand lay it where childhood's dreams are twined in memory's mystic band. He's... So this, this is an injunction, an instruction to Alice. He's addressing his character, Alice. Alice, so take this childish story... Now, it's a little bit unclear. Is, he, is this a dedication? Is, is, is it, is it a, a girl, Alice, that he's addressing? Take this story. I wrote it for you, kind of thing, right? Like we get with Lucy in the uh, dedication to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right, by Lewis. Um, that could be what's happening here. But look what he says. What, well, look what he tells Alice to do. Alice... Take the child, take a childish story. I love the indefinite article here. A childish story, take right, not this childish story. Take a childish story, um, and of course, the word childish is true in more than one sense potentially. Right, um, take a childish story and lay it where childhood's dreams are twined in memory's mystic band. What? Um, if we're talking about a real girl, how is she meant to do this? Where exactly are childhood's dreams twined in memory's mystic band? So we have the mystic band, um, mystic in the sense of like magical and or contemplative, right? Of memory, right? So memory is a band which, which binds things together, right? Um, so memory holds on to things, binds them up, right? Um, you've got childhood dream, childhood's dreams, which are often ephemeral, are often lost, right? But this story is to be laid where the dreams of childhood are twined, right, are wrapped around by the mystic band of memory, Right, so this is to be a childish story that's on the one hand connected to childish childhood's dreams, right? But is to be remembered. Where is this place? I I don't know but this is what makes me think, in a sense, perhaps he's addressing a real girl named Alice as well. But it seems to me at the very least he is also um, uh, he is also addressing his character, right? Because remember, how did he allude to her before? The dream child, moving through a land of wonders wild and new. She was the dream child before. And so who better than the dream child to take the childish story and lay it 
where childhood's dreams are twined in memory's mystic band, right? The dream child would have access to childhood's dreams, right? So taking it, in a sense, back to its native place, right? Maybe. Um, but where they're twined in memory's mystic bands, well, let's... In order to understand this, this is what he's literally saying, but fortunately gives us a simile, right? Um, laying the story where childhood's dreams are twined in memory's mystic band is like what, Lewis Carroll? Apparently it's like pilgrim's withered wreath of flowers plucked in a far-off land. Okay, so you've got a pilgrim um, who returns from a far-off land, right? They've gone on a pilgrimage, and they've returned to their native land and have brought with them from the strange lands that they have visited on the pilgrimage a wreath of flowers that they made. But it's withered now because of the passage of time and distance, right? So the flowers were plucked in a far-off land, and now they're withered, um, but still in a wreath, right? That's what... Let's see. What is the... Um, what is the... What exactly is like the wreath of flowers? The story, presumably, right? Yes, because the story is being laid on something like you might lay a wreath of flowers, I think, presumably, right? Um, ah, oh, right. And where would you lay a wreath of flowers, usually? Where would you lay... The wreath of where do you lay wreaths, especially wreaths of flowers, on the heads of little girls, of course, right? On graves, yes, that's also true. But I'm not thinking graves. I'm, I'm thinking, hey, you put, you know, you boy, you guys are all very morbid. You're all thinking of graves right away. You could lay a wreath of flowers on a grave. That's true. You do do that, right? But if you've plucked flowers and you've made them into a crown, a wreath, you put it, you put it on your head, right? Um, of course, I was led to think about heads already, trying to think about memory and dreams and everything else. Um, yeah, no, I just, I, I'm not saying a grave is impossible. I'm just saying... Uh, I don't see anything deathy in this stanza. Really? I mean, am I missing something? The withering of the wreath of flowers, sure. But see, the withered wreath of flowers seems to me the metaphor for the childhood's dreams, right? Um, the flowers, if you just picked flowers and you were just holding them in a bunch and you keeping them in a bunch, they would be all withered and just it would just be a pile of mush, right? But if you weave them into a wreath the wreath will survive even if the flowers are individually um, starting to wither, right? Um, that is why how the withered wreath of flowers seems to me connected to the childhood's dreams being twined in memory's mystic band, 
right? Um, yeah, Edith, more of growing up than dying is exactly what I'm hearing. Yes, like childhood's dreams wither um, as time goes by, right? Or they will unless they're twined in memory's mystic band, right? And this is his wish for the story, right? And apparently for Alice, um, if this story can be laid where those two things, dreams and memory, are bound together, or twined together, then it will be like a pilgrim's withered wreath of flowers plucked in a far-off land. That is, it will be a, a memoir. It will be a thing that you can hold on to. Um, the pilgrim still has the wreath of flowers, right? Um, apart from the wreath of flowers, the pilgrim has a lot of memories from the trip, right, from the pilgrimage. Uh, that the pilgrim was on. Um, but we're talking about a, a concrete memento of the pilgrimage, right? And the story seems to be that same kind of thing. Um, but um, but yes, Mad Violinist, I do think dried flowers is what we're supposed to be imagining here. Um, a dried wreath, of a, withered, yes, um, but not like decayed, Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So now I agree. It, there is a sense in which we're anticipating childhood, uh, childhood's end here, Zach. But I don't see dark realities coming into place. That is, I, I mean, the passage of time. Right. And thereby the withering of flowers. Um, but that's pretty indirect. Um, it doesn't seem... Again, I don't see like uh, you know, like death and tragedy looming here so much. Um, what I do see is memory is the center of this last stanza, right? Um, that's what he's asking for. Remember, this is a command slash request, right? Um, with a gentle hand, take this story and lay it where dreams and memory are bound together, right? Let it be something that survives. Let it be a living memento, even if like dried flowers, but dry, a wreath of dried flowers is still a concrete memento, right? Of that place that you went where you plucked flowers, right? Um, and yes, Pilgrim does suggest, Brick Tales, that this is a relic of, of a holy experience. It's the only thing that hints at something like holiness um, uh, or sort of religious or quasi-religious experience in this. But the word pilgrim is definitely weighted with that. Um, uh, I do agree, Tarloniel, that the significance of pilgrim certainly does seem as somebody who goes and comes back, right? Um, uh, and so in that sense, what, just as the wreath of flowers is, it's, it's a memoir, but it's not just a memoir. It's a memoir of another place, a faraway place, right? And this story is a memoir of a faraway place, right? The tale of Wonderland, right? Wonderland is a faraway place. Far away in fancy, right? From Comes from the wells of fancy. Um, connected with childhood's dreams, right? Like Alice, the dream child. Um, but um, anyway... 
as you can see, so much more going on in that last stanza, right? That last stanza is a sudden slog there. Um, really rich, really... I mean, you got to stop and read this like five times to even try to really parse what he's talking about here. And that's a really interesting shift at the end. And he ambushes us with that, right? Um, we've had a whole bunch of like expectation and disappointments of expectation have been playing with us um, through the first six stanzas of this poem. And he's doing it again, but in a quite unexpected way, right? With sudden and increased solemnity and density of thought, right? Um, and if I had to, in a very, very um, simplistic way, um, summarize the point of that last stanza, I would say, take this seriously, right? Like, yes, this is a fanciful story, you know, we're a fanciful story of childhood whimsies designed explicitly, right? We get the origin story designed to amuse three girls on a boat and maybe even stop them from running the boat, uh, you know, into the rocks or whatever, right? Um, uh, from being a danger to themselves and others. Uh, but yeah, okay. So we have, um, uh, we have, that's the origin of the story. That's the content of that. We're prepared, right, for the kind of story, in a sense, that we're going to read. But just in case we were tempted to be dismissive, right, all of a sudden, we have this final stanza that we have to take seriously. Um, he is thinking deeply and richly. He is, it's still in the same meter, generally, right? Um, with some variations, but it's still in the same meter. It's still the same story, and yet he's slowed us down, right? And so perhaps uh, that suggests that maybe we'll want to slow down and not just blow off, not just uh, dismiss the silly story that we're going to be reading um, as merely fancy, as merely nonsense, Right? That was the other word that was used. Nonsense is what Lewis Carroll is most famous for. I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of that word applied to Lewis Carroll. People apply that word all the time. Nonsense is the word that I hear, anyway, most um, you know, sort of frequently applied uh, to Lewis Carroll's style and stuff. And certainly he does make use of nonsense, but I wouldn't say that nonsense is the primary characteristic of Lewis's humor, of Lewis's world. Um, it's not wholly inappropriate, but I feel it doesn't quite do justice to it. And I feel that this last stanza is kind of cautioning us. It's not there's, there's, there's more than just nonsense here. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, J.J., I agree. He doesn't write nonsense. He writes about nonsense, and there is a really important distinction between those two things. Um, but, um, uh, yes. But even to dismiss what's hap 
So, well, we'll see. Let's just continue, and we'll see what we find, What, how much sense and how much nonsense we find. Um, all right. This is not the very beginning uh, of the story. It's a couple paragraphs in. So she was considering in her own mind, this is Alice, of course, so she was considering in her own mind, as well as she could, for the hot day made her feel very sleepy and stupid, whether the pleasure of making a daisy chain would be worth the trouble of getting up and picking the daisies, when suddenly a white rabbit with pink eyes ran close by her. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't help but notice the daisy chain, uh, which has now achieved new dimensions in my imagination, right, um, after that last stanza of that poem. We immediately, one of the very first things we find Alice doing is contemplating making a wreath of flowers, right? Um, which is interesting. Interesting also in that she's contemplating making a wreath of flowers while still in her home frame of reference, right? Not like the pilgrim going to the strange land and coming back with a wreath of flowers. Um, but um, uh, anyway, okay, anyway, sorry, sorry. Um, whether the pleasure of making a daisy chain would be worth the trouble of getting up and picking the daisies, when suddenly a white rabbit with pink eyes ran close by her. There was nothing so very remarkable in that, nor did Alice think it so very much out of the way to hear the rabbit say to itself, Oh dear, oh dear, I shall be too late. When she thought it over afterwards, it occurred to her that she ought to have wondered at this, but at the time it all seemed quite natural. But when the rabbit actually took a watch out of its waistcoat pocket and looked at it, and then hurried on, Alice started to her feet, for it flashed across her mind that she had never before seen a rabbit with either a waistcoat pocket or a watch to take out of it. And burning with curiosity, she ran across the field after it, and was just in time to see it pop down a large rabbit hole under the hedge. In another moment, down went Alice after it, never once considering how in the world she was to get out again. Okay. Um, what happens in that second stanza? Stanza. Paragraph. We're in prose now. Um, what happens in that second paragraph? Um, notice the transition in. First we have a white rabbit with pink eyes that ran close by her. Right? Oh, by the way, footnote. Um, again, for people who don't read much older literature, I want to make sure you know what the word stupid means, especially in this context, right? Um, when you're feeling stupid, it doesn't mean you're feeling unintelligent. It means in a stupor, like when you're kind of half asleep, right? Feeling sleepy and stupid. I often feel stupid when uh, in the morning <laughs> when my alarm goes off. Uh, I feel quite stupid for some time. Um, uh, so, yeah, it comes from the word stupor, like to be in a stupor. Um, so when you're kind of like blinking and bleary and everything, that's what it means to be stupid. So that's what he's referring to there. Um, uh, some, could somebody look, if some, somebody who has the OED, could you look up for me, when does the word stupid, when is the earliest usage that the OED gives for the word stupid in its modern usage? of unintelligent. Can somebody, um, uh, can somebody look that up for me? I'd appreciate it. Okay. Um, notice that the, the transition there, we get three stages with the white rabbit, right? 
the first thing that we see is the whiteness of the rabbit. That's unusual. It's an albino rabbit, a white rabbit with pink eyes, right? It's, that's unusual, but not so very remarkable, right? I mean, there are white rabbits, after all, right? Um, yes, David, Sam Gamgee blinking stupidly uh, under Old Man Willow is, exactly, is, is doing exactly the same thing. Um, but um, uh, anyway, okay. Um, as we start with the unusual, an albino rabbit, right? And then we go to um, the rabbits talking. That's our, the next stage. And then the third stage is, oh, and it's wearing clothes and has a pocket watch. Right? And where along this trajectory, right, where on this spectrum does Alice take notice? And it's not until the third stage, right? Um, Alice, when she thinks about it afterwards, it occurs to her that really step two is when she should have started marveling, right? Should have noticed that something was was um, odd about the talking albino rabbit, right? Albino rabbit, unusual, not unheard of. Talking albino rabbit really should have struck her as significant, right? Um, but she didn't. She didn't think it very much out of the way to hear the rabbit talk. It's the clothes and the pocket watch that really make her think something particularly strange is happening. Um, what's happening here? I think one of the cues that we're getting here is that this is a dream. Right? We start with her feeling sleepy and stupid. Right? She seems on the verge of, of falling asleep. And then the way that this described, it sounds very much like the capturing of a dream experience. Right? Um, uh, oh, sorry, Zach. Yeah, um... Uh, every Wednesday, most Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern time-ish is when we start. Uh, so we'll be doing this for the next uh, few months going through uh, the Alice books. Um, so yeah, uh, Wednesday, 10 o'clock on these channels. That's the schedule. Anyway, but I think we've all had this kind of experience in a dream, right? Where something happens in a dream and within the dream, it might be a very, very weird thing indeed, right? But within the dream you don't really notice it, right? It doesn't strike you as odd, even though it is very odd, right? And afterwards, um, uh, afterwards, in retrospect, when you remember the dream, uh, you know, if you remember the dream and tell somebody else about it, I mean, I think we've all said something like this, right? Yeah, then this happened. And that sounds pretty weird, but it, you know, it didn't seem weird in the dream. Right? We've all kind of had that experience. This seems to me, the uh, nor did Alice think it so very much out of the way to, he to hear the rabbit say to itself, Oh dear, oh dear, I shall be too late. When she thought it over afterwards, it occurred to her that she ought to have wondered at this, but it seemed quite natural, right, at the time. Um, that seems to me a hint that we are looking at the, um, uh, uh, that we're looking at the, um, 
we're we're looking at a dream experience, right? That is the quality of experience that we're that we're looking at. Um, yeah, um, Tomas. Yes, this is why you guys will, if you you know, so Tolkien fans who know their on fairy stories will remember that Tolkien has a whole. It's one of his footnotes, as I recall, where he talks about the dream mechanism. Um, and he rejects the dream mechanism uh, as an element of fantasy, saying that the dream mechanism undermines the fantasy. It undermines the secondary world, right? And he talks about Alice as an illustration of that, right? He very much is understanding the dream mechanism, and the dream mechanism in different places becomes more explicit, um, that there is, in fact, a dream going on. Um, Okay. Awesome. Thank you. There I see that um, uh, Carrie found a usage uh, back in the 16th century. Okay, yeah. Now, I was pretty sure that the word was used in that sense of mentally slow, um, lacking ordinary activity of mind. Yeah. Um, but you can see how that usage is sort of a metaphorical usage, right? Like that state of being foggy and unclear about things, but permanent, right? Um and uh, uh, and then the more literal version passes off and ceases to be used. Uh, and, you know, I think, yeah, by the 20th century, I think we stopped really talking that way, except for Tolkien. Um, and uh, and then it just becomes it just comes to mean the metaphorical thing, the extended thing. Anyway, sorry. OK. Um, yeah. All right. So now I just want to notice in passing that um, in another moment, Alice down went Alice after it. I want to I want to note in passing that we get no conversation about this. That is, we're going to spend a very great deal of time in the whole first two chapters, the whole rest of the first two chapters, focusing on Alice's relative size and how it relates to her getting through a small passage to a place where she wants to be. Right. Um, uh, that's going to be the the in as much as there is a plot uh, focus in the first two chapters. That's it. Right. How is she going to get through the passage and out into the garden? That's what she wants to do. But she's not able to do it for various reasons because of her uh, peculiar irregularities of size. Right. And yet notice that this whole story begins with her popping down a rabbit hole without any explanation, right? Um, no explanation, no telescopes, no uh, shrinkings, right? Um, she just sees a rabbit hole, sees the rabbit go down the hole, pops in after it, um, never once considering, there's a lot apparently that she's not considering, but the thing that our attention is drawn to is that she's not considering how in the world she was to get out again. And that cue that we get at the end there is almost like a setup of us, right? It's almost like a distraction. It's like a, a magician's sleight of hand, almost. He's drawing our attention to how in the world is she going to get out again, right? Without, and thereby distracting us from the fact that she just totally went down a rabbit hole without either, without digging or shrinking or whatever, right? Um, she just popped down there. Um, and again, that's an extremely conspicuous fact, in the context of what's going to happen in the rest of the first two chapters. All right. 
Then she falls for a really, really long time. Presently, she began again, talking, that is. I wonder if I shall fall right through the earth. How funny it'll seem to come out among the people that walk with their heads downwards. The antipathies, I think. Remember, she likes to show off her learning. Uh, she was showing off her mathematical learning before. Um, and, uh, uh, and now she's showing off her geography, right? The antipathies. She was rather glad there was no one listening uh, this time, as it didn't sound at all the right word. What word does she mean? Of course, right? She doesn't mean the antipathies. Uh, she means something quite different. But shall I, shall I have to ask them the name? But, but I shall have to ask them what the name of the country is, you know. Please, ma'am, is this New Zealand or Australia? And she tried to curtsy as she spoke. Fancy curtsying as you're falling through the air. Do you think you could manage it? And what an ignorant little girl she'll think me for asking. No, it'll never do to ask. Perhaps I shall see it written up somewhere. Yes, it's the Antipodes that she is thinking of, right? Close, but not quite the same as Antipathies, right? Um, uh, okay, so... Um, what's going on here? Why is she thinking about falling into the Antipathies? So we got a few elements of this paragraph. We have her... the mistake that she makes. And this is one of the first but very much not the last of her mistakes, right? Those are going to become more acute as we move forward. Um, she knows the word, but she doesn't get the right word. She says antipathy instead of antipathy. Antipathy, antipodes. Um, and she's aware that she's made a mistake, right? It didn't sound at all like, it didn't sound at all the right word, right? And then the third the, 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 the second element, right, is her imagining falling right through the earth and out the other side, right? So that this fall is just going to be a sort of a form of travel, right? She's going through the earth and popping out the other side, and she's going to end up in New Zealand or Australia, but she doesn't know exactly which. Um, and there's this imagined conversation with, you know... Uh, a woman that she meets on the other side of the world, right? And she even curtsies while falling in midair, right? Tries to curtsy. Um, the difficulty of the degree of difficulty of this uh, project, uh, our attention is drawn to that, right? Um, but then she's imagining how ignorant the woman she meets is going to is going to think her, right? For having to ask what country she's in. And she resolves not to ask. Um, okay, so one of the things that I kind of like to do when I'm reading this stuff, it is my experience with Lewis Carroll that we often get things kind of jumbled together and Alice's mind flits around quite a lot, right? However, um... Alice's mind does not seem to flit to me anything like randomly. And separate items all jumbled together often seem to me um, not accidentally jumbled together, not to be quite so miscellaneous uh, as, they would, uh, as they would seem. Um, 
we have on the one hand this picture of Alice's picture of herself, right? Her pride in her learning. She she likes to be the center of attention. She likes to show off, right? She likes to show off her learning. Um, she likes people to think her a clever girl, right? So she 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 likes an audience. She wants to meet people and but and, and talk with them. And she imagines herself. There's she has this image of herself, the curtsy, right? Um, uh, she's practicing her dialogue. Please, ma'am, is this New Zealand or Australia? She says, curtsying, right? Um, what a what a fine, polite girl this random woman in New Zealand or Australia is likely to think her, right? Um, polite and clever, right? And but then she second guesses that. Right? No, no, no. She's going to think her an ignorant little girl. So I'd best not say that. Right? So we, we certainly get a kind of picture of Alice's overall sort of self-opinion. Right? Um, she has a relatively high opinion of herself and likes to be thought well of, and but is also uh, dislikes the prospect of uh, of being thought ignorant. Ignorant, this seems to be a touchy point with her, right? Um, she has learned a lot. She is rather self-important, David. Absolutely. Absolutely. Notice how um, she is, in her own mind, the absolute central character of this whole thing, right? Um, she doesn't think about what her sudden appearance might do to other people or what effect it might have on them other than how they might think about her, right? Um... But in addition, we get this idea of her falling through the earth, right? So she, this, this, I don't want to say metaphor, that makes it sound unnecessarily English teachery, but this image, right, of what her journey is like. Where is she going? What is happening with Alice, right? Um, she started off up on top of the world, right? And now she's falling down through and she's going to pop out the other side among the people that walk with their heads downwards, right? So where is she? What is this journey about? What is this trip to? It's she's going to upside down world, right? That's one way in which we have been prompted to think about it. And that upside down world has called the Antipodes. But in Alice's mistake, she calls it the antipathies. That is not where people are oriented differently with their heads downward, but where people feel things differently, right? Um, uh, where they don't feel about things the same way that we feel about things. Now, she's not really speculating that. It's just an error, right? It's a slip on her part. But yet, through that slip, Carol juxtaposes those two things, right? Upside down in a physical sense, perhaps upside down in some sense, you know, in some way, in an emotional sense as well, right? Okay. Down, down, down. There was nothing else to do, so Alice began talking again. Dinah will miss me very much tonight, I should think. Dinah was the cat. I hope they'll remember her saucer of milk at tea time. Dinah, my dear, I wish you were down here with me. There are no mice in the air, I'm afraid, but you might catch a bat, and that's very like a mouse, you know. But do cats eat bats, I wonder? And here Alice began to get rather sleepy and went on saying to herself in a dreamy sort of way, Do cats eat bats? Do cats eat bats? And sometimes, do bats eat cats? For you see, as she couldn't answer either question, it didn't much matter which way she put it. 
She felt that she was dozing off, and had just begun to dream that she was walking hand in hand with Dinah, and was saying to her very earnestly, Now, Dinah, tell me the truth. Did you ever eat a bat? When suddenly, thump, thump, down she came upon a heap of sticks and dry leaves, and the fall was over. Okay. Um, notice several things here. First of all, reversal. Upside-down world, right? The antipathies. Um, notice how she travels through uh, the grammatical world of the antipathies as well, right? Um, she, in her semi-dream-like state within the dream, um, reverses syntax. Do cats eat bats? Do bats eat cats? Right? Um, a simple reversal, right? Like the antipodes. But, of course, very antipathetic as well. Uh, very much contrary to the feelings of the people involved. Uh, it turns out, yes, when you turn do cats eat bats on its head to do bats eat cats, you are, in fact, asking a very different question, <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, uh, yes, that, that is uh, how English works, in fact, right? Um, so her um, little reversal of syntax. And I love how, like, she, you see, she couldn't answer either question, so it didn't matter which way she put it, right? Well, it might matter to the cats and the bats which way she put it, right? It might not matter to her, but it would matter to them, as indeed there's a, a fair bit of antipathy between cats and mice, in any case, and perhaps by extension cats and bats, even though those two words, cats and bats, are quite similar. Um, uh, and, yeah, she's fallen asleep. She's falling asleep in her dream, right? So now we have... And this, it strikes me as um, yet another cue, right? Just in case we had not yet been thinking in dreamlike terms, we get an explicit dream sequence within the dream sequence, right? She's thinking about her cat, and then she starts dreaming about having a conversation, walking hand in hand with her cat, and having a conversation to her very earnestly. Now, Dinah, tell me the truth. Did you ever eat a bat? Um, and then the fall is suddenly over with a dream-like thump-thump, which does not hurt her one bit. Okay. Um... Alice opened the door and found that it led into a small passage, not much larger than a rat hole. She knelt down and looked along the passage into the loveliest garden you ever saw. How she longed to get out of that dark hall and wander about among those beds of bright flowers and those cool fountains, but she could not even get her head through the doorway. And even if my head would go through, thought poor Alice, it would be of very little use without my shoulders. Oh, how I wish I could shut up like a telescope. I think I could if only I knew how to begin. For you see, so many out-of-the-way things had happened lately that Alice had begun to think that very few things, indeed, were really impossible. Okay. Um, for those who have read this story before, do you see the joke? Do you see the foreshadowing? Just as her popping down the rabbit hole was a foreshadowing of this moment when she's looking at a passage not much larger than a rat hole, and lamenting her inability to enter it, right? Um, 
But um, now we are invited to imagine her head being separated from her shoulders. But that would be an undesirable state of affairs, wouldn't it? If Alice's head were to be separated from her shoulders. Um, I think we can all agree that it's a good thing we don't have to worry about that, right? Um, but of course, perhaps that will come out to be relevant later on. Um, and yes, JJ, I agree with you. She does seem to think of her body as a collection of pieces instead of as a unified whole. Um, this is the first moment, right? This dissociation between her head and shoulders. Um, she does think that her head would be of very little use without her shoulders, right? And yet she is imagining them as separable, right? Uh, it's an undesirable separation, but, um, uh, but she is sort of imagining them as separable. And then she's imagining shutting up her body like a telescope, which I also think, J.J., is um, like that idea of sort of the collection of pieces, right? I mean, a telescope is a series of cylinders, right, which are like one another, but they're not the same size and they're not really connected to each other, right? They're just inside one another. Um, they're in contact with one another, but they're separate pieces. And so they can collapse down one piece fitting inside the other in order to make a much smaller thing, which is what she's imagining of her, you know, of her own body here, right? And maybe, maybe that is, that is possible, right? That one piece of herself could fit inside the other until she's very small, right? She had begun to think that very few things indeed were really impossible. Remember her marveling at the rabbit with the waistcoat pocket and the watch to put in it, right? Um, but she's now far from wondering about that, right? She has come to embrace the idea that very few things appear, based on what she has recently experienced, to be really impossible. So perhaps she can, um, uh, perhaps she can collapse herself like a telescope if she really applies herself, right? Um, okay, and now she finds the bottle. It was all very well to say, drink me, but the wise little Alice was not going to do that in a hurry. No, I'll look first, she said, and see whether it's marked poison or not. For she had read several nice little stories about children who had got burnt, eaten up by wild beasts, and other unpleasant things, all because they would not remember the simple rules their friends had taught them, such as that a red-hot poker will burn you if you hold it too long and that if you cut your finger very deeply with a knife, it usually bleeds. And she had never forgotten that if you drink much from a bottle marked poison, it is almost certain to disagree with you sooner or later. However, this bottle was not marked poison, so Alice ventured to taste it, and finding it very nice, it had in fact a sort of mixed flavor of cherry tart, custard, pineapple, roast turkey, toffee, and hot buttered toast. She very soon finished it off. Um... I love that first paragraph there. Um, uh, she had read several nice little stories about children who had got burnt, eaten up by wild beasts, and other unpleasant things. Um, uh, do you guys know what Carol's referring to here? Right? Are, is this a is this a genre of literature with which you are familiar? Um, because 
it's a sort of delightful and delightfully horrifying genre of literature. Actual genre, right? Do you guys know what he's talking about? Um, not fairy tales, I don't think. No, not, not fairy tales exactly. Um, but um, uh, yes, Edith, object lessons for kids. Uh, there were a whole bunch of storybooks for a 19th century children. Victorians loved these. Um, moralizing tales. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, Grimm's fairy tales have horrible things happening. But you'll notice it's not just that horrible things happen to children. Um, but they happen because they would not remember the simple rules their friends, you know, such as their nurses and mothers, had taught them. Um, so... There, there was this whole genre of stories written for children that depicted little children who did not obey the rules. And when they didn't obey the rules, uh, they, um, uh, they, they, something, some, some horrible thing happened to them. Usually, uh, they, uh, die, uh, a horrible, <laughs> painful death. <laughs> Seriously, that very often happened. Um, in fact, uh, those of you who know Jane Eyre, may remember one of my favorite passages from Jane Eyre, though I'm not going to be able to quote it properly from memory. Um, in the very early chapters when Jane is still at school, in that, that horrible school, um, and uh, um, he... Uh, so the, the, she is referred to... Uh, she is um, recommended to read a book which is called something like the awfully sudden death of, uh, of, you know, of this girl who like disobeyed and didn't like, basically who was guilty of the thing that, uh, you know, Jane Eyre herself was just guilty of. Um, that's, that, that's, it's the same genre of books that he's talking about. So yes, children had instructional books, which told them that if like they told lies that like they would die miserably on the streets. And if they did not listen to their mothers, when their mothers told them not to go over to that place over there, then they did go over to that place over there and they are eaten up by wild beasts. Right. And so the moral of the story is always obey your mother when she tells you to like, this is, um, this is, the kind of thing that happened. There, 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 it's a whole subgenre of children's lit literature, which Carol is obviously making fun of here, right? His, uh, his rather tart, nice little stories uh, reference here, right, uh, is great. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, and you can see. I mean, so uh, several of you are talking about um, George MacDonald, and yeah, I, I do. I don't know much about. Um, uh, either MacDonald or, or or Lewis Carroll's life, but uh, um, but I do believe that they knew each other. Um, but uh, anyway, the um, I mean, if you read George MacDonald, like if you read the 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 Princess and the Goblin, you will you can hear an element of that kind of moralizing tale for children in it now. The Princess and the Goblin is a much, much better book than these horrible, nice little stories that Lewis Carroll's referring to. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, it's there's that there's an overlay of that same kind of um, Victorian moralizing uh, in 
some of George MacDonald's work. Uh, again, he does it very well um, uh, and not sort of comically and horrible. Um, but um, yeah, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't know that, Marie, that MacDonald's wife read the draft of Alice in Wonderland to their children as, uh, as the first test audience. That's cool. I didn't know that. Um, but um, anyway, so yes, so this is, this is a whole thing. Um, now, why is Carol alluding to this, right? Um, what are those stories about? Right? Notice the um, he's pointing to those stories as a kind of model in the background, right? Um, and the way that those stories, those stories, they're very simple, right? And the primary function of those stories is cause and effect, right? That is the mechanism of those stories, cause and effect, right? When a child does one of these naughty things, right, bad things happen. But if the child does good things, right, um, then good things happen. That's the lesson, right, uh, that you're supposed to learn. Um, and so on the one hand, we're told that Alice has herself um, greatly benefited from this genre of literature, right? She knows all of the things, all of the things that she has learned. Things like, um, if you hold a red-hot poker for too long, it will burn you, cause and effect, right? Uh, if you cut your finger very deeply with a knife, it usually bleeds, right? She's learned her lessons very, very well. And if you drink much from a bottle marked poison, it is almost certain to disagree with you sooner or later. Um, notice how the causal relationships that Alice has learned are degrading over time here, right? We start with a red-hot poker will burn you if you hold it too long. Simple cause, simple effect. The second one, the cutting your finger very deeply with a knife, is also cause and effect, but it's qualified, right? It usually bleeds. More often than not, if you cut yourself with a knife, blood happens, right? Um, usually. Usually. So we have this like um, potential suspension of the normal cause and effect, right? And then if you n notice the number of qualifications that start getting heaped onto the poison statement, right? If you drink much from a bottle marked poison, it is almost certain to disagree with you sooner or later, right? We got heaps and heaps of qualifications there. Um, which that is certainly not how the nice little stories go about drinking things marked poison, right? Um, uh, so we've invoked this whole genre of simple cause and effect. If you do a good thing, good things happen. If you do a bad thing, then horrible things happen to you. If you do a wrong thing, horrible things happen to you. Um, and Alice recalls those things. But again, those the memory is fraying as it goes through, right? It's not the cause and effect. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not sticking. It's not holding, right? And her own actions now, we're, we're bringing this up because what we're not going to get in this book, we're certainly not going to get that kind of simplistic cause and effect, right? Normally, the way things work is that if you do this, this other thing happens, right? And the thing with Alice's experiences here so far is that um, those things are not happening. Notice it started from the beginning, 
if we go back for a second again, now that we're oriented to the nice little stories, right? Well, if you've read lots of those nice little stories, then again, back to back to uh, the um, no before this, yeah, yeah. Um, in another in another moment, Alice went down after it, down the rabbit hole after it, never once considering how in the world she was to get out again. Okay, now if this were one of these nice little stories, what would happen? Alice goes down a hole without considering how she was going to get out again. She just goes down without thinking into a dark and dangerous hole. If this were one of the nice little stories, she would die miserably, right? <laughs> Lamenting her hideous fate <laughs> down. And, there would, and everybody would be really sad about how Alice died because she went down a hole um, and her mom had told her not to go down strange holes where nobody knows, you know, where nobody go off where nobody knows where you are and go down strange holes. But like Alice did it. And so she died horribly. The end. Right. That would be how the normal cause and effect would work in one of these nice little stories. But of course, that's not it sounds like the setup for that. Never once considering how in the world she was to get out again. Um, by the way. Some of you have probably already been thinking of those moments at the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when uh, C.S. Lewis talks about how very, very foolish a thing it is to shut oneself into a wardrobe, right? Which has this same feeling, right? There are definitely nice little stories about children who lock themselves into cupboards and closets and die of starvation or something like that, right? Um, uh, And notice how Lewis plays with that. Right. Uh, Lucy knows how foolish it is to shut herself uh, into uh, a wardrobe and good things happen to her. You, um, uh, not Eustace. Edmund, right, does close the door of the wardrobe all the way. Right. Forgetting how foolish a thing it is to do that. And bad things happen to him. Right. Um, you know, it's not exactly the way they draw it up in the nice little stories. Um but um, but again, notice how um, uh, notice how C.S. Lewis is is playing with that same genre of literature, which he certainly um, was familiar with uh, as well. Um, but anyway, okay, sorry. But in the Alice context, this kind so we have this um, template, right? This cause and effect template, this moralized cause and effect template um, lurking in the background explicitly invoked right and we're reminded of it and that should draw our attention to the fact that the logical obvious consequence of your actions almost never happens in this world right she's falling through the world right um, does she Reap the, it sounds like maybe she's going to reap the consequences, right? Like when she splatters uh, into a little puddle of mush when she finally lands, and that'll teach little girls to go running down rabbit holes, right? Um, uh, but no, doesn't happen, right? She Thump, thump, there she is, landed on the bottom. There were leaves and sticks, so she's okay, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, when she herself recalls these stories and tries to apply them, right? No, I'll look first. 
the bottle is not marked poison. So she tastes it, and finding it very nice, she soon finished it off, right? And she finds it very nice, though peculiar, right? A sort of mixed flavor, I'll say. Mixed of cherry tart, custard, pineapple, roast turkey, toffee, and hot buttered toast, all of which are very delicious things, right? Um, and, I mean, by the way, even that itself kind of puts me in mind of uh, of Lucy's tea at Mr. Tumnus's house, doesn't it? Um, but, yeah, all of them together? Okay. Very nice, I guess, in its own multiplicity of ways. Though, again, even that, like, if you mix all of those flavors together, you know, the cause and effect, normally, it's not, that's not a good outcome, right? But it is here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, Sharon, I agree. It does kind of sound like the, the gum from Willy Wonka, the full meal gum, right? Yeah, 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 it does sound like that. Um, but at least there, it was still a succession of flavors rather than all, all at once, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes. Yeah. Um, I agree, Carrie. In another century, one would turn into a blueberry. Yes, exactly. Uh, Roald Dahl is still playing with those kinds of stories, isn't he? Um, the, uh, the Oompa Loompas give us the moral lessons uh, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We have that same conventions that Roald Dahl is playing with there as well, um, isn't he? But Lewis Carroll's playing with them in a different way, Right. Um, and the different way that he's playing with them is that the logical causes and effects seem to be wholly suspended, or almost wholly suspended, right? Not only is Alice not reaping uh, the consequence of her many questionable decisions, right? Um, she's done many things which presumably uh, good Victorian nursemaids would rather their charges did not do, right? Um <laughs> jump down holes, uh, drink strange liquid, even though it's not labeled poison. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd even like chasing after rabbits, not necessarily a great thing. Um, uh, anyway, there's that she's not really, Alice is not really setting a very good example for childhood behavior, right? And not only is she not receiving the just consequences of her moral choices, right, um, there is a larger suspension of cause and effect, right? Of course, what is going to happen when she drinks this is not that she is going to, uh, you know, die a hideous, painful death from the poisonous thing she drank, um, but she, it's going to make her shrink. And you'll remember this kind of cause and effect, um, or rather suspension of cause and effect, Lewis Carroll is going to draw our attention to it explicitly again when she eats the cake, right? Remember, she she takes a piece of cake at first and she puts her hand on her head to see if she's growing any taller or shorter, right? Um, and then she finds that she doesn't seem to be changing in size. And then Lewis Carroll says, which, of course, is normally what happens when one eats cake, right? You don't normally grow or shrink when you eat cake in fact, right? Um, so, that's not normally how cause and effect works, but of course this is not normal cause and effect at all. So not only are the like moral guidelines suspended, 
the entire, like the rules of nature uh, apparently are suspended here and she has to just try to figure them out. Now, um, uh, it's late. I'm going to stop here. Um, we didn't get through the first two chapters as I was not, I'm not surprised. We started with a poem for, for crying out loud. So, um, there's, um, uh, I, (laughs) I was tempted just to do the poem today. Uh, but, uh, but that's okay. Um, we got considering that we started with a poem. I think we got a fair distance in, um, we are going to so for next time I should be here next week, um, so we'll have uh, we'll we'll have our next discussion next week. Go ahead and read chapters three and four. I'm gonna try to do. I'm shooting for two chapters a week. We'll see how that goes. Um, but since we don't have that long poem, maybe we'll get caught up next time. I know there's poetry <laughs> as we go forward, but we'll see how we do. Read three and four for next time. They're short. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Uh, And uh, I look forward to continuing our discussions next week. Lewis Carroll is so much fun. Thanks, everybody. Good night now.